Welcome back, Bible readers. Once again, this is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 25. And this week, we'll be covering Psalm 21 through Psalm 59. And I hope that the Psalms is an enjoyable break for you and a refresher, because we're going to have some harder reading coming up as we get into some of these major prophets. But let me encourage you, uh, by this time next week, you'll be starting on week number 26, which is exactly halfway through the year's readings. So technically, it will be all downhill from there. But let's get started with what we need to talk about today in Psalm 21. Psalm 21 is a royal psalm that celebrates some victory that God had brought to David, for which David praised him for. You know, when we experience victory over our enemies, whether it's human, spiritual, emotional, social, etc., those types of enemies, we should quickly acknowledge that our success is not because of our great abilities, but because of God's work on our behalf. Psalm 22 is a psalm that provides encouragement for those who feel forsaken by God because their prayers seem to go unanswered. This was one of the main problems that the psalmist would proclaim. He would proclaim this problem that he was suffering at the hands of his, of his enemies, and it seems that his cries to God went unheard. And there is something to be said of perseverance here. Knowing that God will never abandon his own, we must continue in prayer, anticipating and waiting for God to act. And in addition to this, the New Testament provides another way to look at this psalm through the lens of the suffering Savior. Matthew, John, and the writer to the book of Hebrews all have quotations in their books coming from this particular psalm, specifically as the psalm relates to the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. Now, Psalm 23 doesn't need an introduction. It's likely to be the most well-known psalm and maybe the most well-known passage in all the Bible. But what's most prominent in the psalm is the shepherd and sheep imagery, which is frequently used in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. You know, sheep are prone to wander. As Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But thankfully, we have a shepherd who calls us back to the fold when we stray, who helps us back up when we fall, who shows us the right path to take, who walks with us into the valleys of death and uncertainty. And he does all these things for us, not because we are somehow good sheep as if this is a reward, but simply because he wants to. He loves us. And no matter how many times we stray by every whim and desire that sin in this world throws at us, he will still await our return to the fold. If there is anything that this psalm teaches, it's that the fundamental personality of Christ is that of a guide. A guide cannot do your life for you, but a guide can tell you from experience what is good and what is not. And if there's any guide that you should listen to with all your heart, it's the great shepherd because he's been through everything that life can throw at a person and has come out victorious. Psalm 24 teaches that those who assemble to praise the sovereign Lord of creation for his mighty works and acts must be pure in thought and in deed. The worshiper must ensure that he or she is in proper spiritual condition before they can enter the presence of the Lord. Very important concept in Psalm 24. In Psalm 25, the word teach or learning is the key concept in this psalm. And it would seem that many today want to find a way to escape the class of suffering. We don't want to learn how to get through suffering well. We just want to get out of it. But this psalm is a good teacher that shows us that suffering is part of a believer's identity. Many believers live in very peaceful and quiet settings and therefore might have a hard time identifying with the kinds of crisis that we find in this psalm. But believers down through history and even now all over the world face cruel and treacherous enemies. And the antagonism to believers is always there in some subtle way, waiting for the opportunity to lash out at a believer's faith, or the word of God. And so this psalm teaches us how to suffer well. Psalm 26, the theme of this psalm is very similar to Psalm 1. 
However, these two psalms are in no way identical. David prefers to be in the house of the Lord than in the company of ungodly people. David is asking the Lord to help him walk in integrity, living a life that has not fallen under the influence of evil men. Psalm 27 is a favorite psalm by many. The theme of confidence seems to be the key thought. In the midst of trouble caused by false witnesses, the psalmist remains confident in the Lord who has delivered and protected him many times before. He desires to go to the sanctuary where he will be reminded of all the wonderful works of the Lord through the praise of the people. There he will seek the Lord's favor to deliver him and guide him yet again. And there he will be encouraged to be strong in the faith as he awaits the response of the Lord. Much like when we go to church, we're encouraged by others to remain strong in the faith, to persevere. Psalm 28, it seems that David is often raising the question of fairness or justice, not something new. What we need to do is pay attention to what David raises the issue to here. He does not instruct us on how to handle it, The way he handles it is through prayer. Of course, we can get angry, angry with God, angry with offenders, but that doesn't solve anything. David tended to lay the issue out before God in prayer, and sometimes the answer to prayer is an ability that God gives you to cope with the problem. Almost like the story of Job, some things our finite minds cannot put together, but we should trust that God, who puts all things together, has our best interests at heart. Psalm 29 Uh, This psalm was written either during a thunderstorm or when a storm was still fresh in the mind of the writer. This psalm is unlike any other psalm we've seen before. To begin with, it consists entirely of praise to God. This psalm is pure poetry, especially because of all the repetition. The phrase, the Lord, occurs more than 15 times, and the voice of the Lord occurs many times. Other psalms praise God, of course, but... Almost all mix praise with something else, frequently with appeals or prayers to God to help in the midst of a, of, of a hard time or applications of the greatness of God. This psalm has no of those elements, has none of those elements. It is pure praise. It does not call upon us to do anything because the psalm itself is doing the only thing that it's concerned about. It's praising God. Now, Psalm 30, also a favored Um, Verse 5 of the psalm is a favorite of many. God's anger is but for a moment while his favor lasts for a lifetime. You know, whenever God withholds his favor and suffering comes our way, we must know that it's only for a moment. This is what kept the Apostle Paul ministering when he encountered severe trouble on every side. He looked on things eternal rather than on things temporal. You can find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. Now, Psalm 31 reminds us that God has been delivering his people for ages and will continue to do so if they trust him. The psalm reminds us that we need to entrust our lives to his care, knowing that our times and circumstances are in his hands, not the hands of our enemies. He is our rock and fortress. He's the place where we go to seek refuge because when the world is falling apart around us, he's the rock and fortress that does not move. Psalm 32 tells us that We don't know what sin David is referring to in this psalm, but we know that he had suffered a terrible, terrible emotional and spiritual anguish. He confessed his sin and sought the Lord's forgiveness, and this seeking brought him joy and relief. And it's the same truth that's also essential for us today. Concealing your sin uh, does nothing but cause depression and guilt. But if we confess our sins, relief and a restored fellowship with the Father comes, joy comes, as a result, I'm reminded of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. On to Psalm 33. Psalm 33 is a hymn of praise, summarizing what the Lord 
is worthy of praise. This psalm demonstrates four ways that God's people can praise him. They can praise him for his true words, for his eternal plan, for his righteous judgment, and for his loyal love. There's your four-point outline. There's your four-point devotional message from Psalm 33. Psalm 34, uh, the historical inscription in this psalm is very specific, and it relates to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Um, this psalm shows us the proper response to trials. This psalm is also quoted, portions of it, uh, by Peter in the New Testament. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-17, through 17, uh, Peter describes the believer as holy and then gives them all kinds of practical instructions on how to live out their faith. Then as he moves on in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, he quotes from Psalm 34 and applies it to Christians. So this psalm would be good to study in more detail when reading through 1 Peter. Psalm 35 is another psalm about the perpetual issue that comes up in the psalms, the suffering of the righteous at the hands of the malicious enemies who try to ruin the faithful through false accusations. The psalm is essentially a prayer to God that he would protect the righteous as well as vindicate them. Psalm 36 reminds us that there are two kinds of people, those who live with no fear of God and live in defiance of his law, and those who are righteous, striving to live by faith. The message of this psalm is timeless. The only hope that we have for safety and security in a world dominated by godless people is the faithful love of the Lord. Psalm 37 also carries on the thoughts of Psalm 36. In this psalm, he urges the righteous person not to let the prosperity of the wicked upset them. They need to continue to trust in God's justice. And the main point here is that we should center our lives on God. This will stop us from fretting or from worrying. Those who live by faith and look for the coming of the Lord will not be anxious about this world's inequities, but they will rejoice in the Lord's blessings on those righteous ones. Psalm 38 is a psalm wherein David is expressing a repentant spirit for sinning against God. The sin that he had committed incurred the discipline of God, and that came in the form of opposition from his enemies. Sometimes believers can bring physical, emotional, interpersonal suffering on ourselves by sinning, and in such cases God may discipline us with pain that we will not learn to do the same thing again. In this difficult process, we should reaffirm our trust in God, who again has our best interests at heart. Now, Psalm 39, David seems to have composed this psalm during a prolonged illness that almost proved fatal. You might think of the book of Job in this context. He petitioned God to extend his days rather than continue the chastening. When we were talking through Job, we mentioned that oftentimes when in the midst of suffering, people need to turn to God rather than turn away from him. And this psalm is teaching us that very same thing. The focus on the Lord in any suffering is essential because it is that focus on Him that transforms our pain into hope. And the hope that we have in the Lord can transcend all pain, especially in the hope of being with Him one day in glory. Psalm 40, in this psalm, David offered himself as a sacrifice to God because the Lord had delivered him. Sounds like a great application of Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, where Paul says, where Paul tells us rather, that we should present our bodies to Christ as a living sacrifice because it's only, it's our reasonable service. Now also verses 6, 7, and 8 of this psalm is quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 to 7. What's interesting here is that the author of Hebrews quotes these verses concerning Christ's attitude at his incarnation. The sacrifices of the Mosaic system could never satisfy God's high demands. They only covered sin temporarily and expressed worship superficially. The offering that satisfied God was the willing self-sacrifice of the sinless Son of Man. Jesus Christ here is 
offered himself to God, as David did, as he expressed in this psalm. So I think it's interesting how some of the New Testament authors used some of these psalms to kind of prove their point or prove their uh, flow of thought they're discussing in their books. Now, in Psalm 41, we are provided a contrast between those who show mercy to people in need and those who deal treacherously with them. God blesses people who take care of those who cannot care for themselves, and he delivers them when they need help. Now, this psalm concludes the book, one of the first collections of the psalms, Psalm 1 through Psalm 41. That's book 1. So, Psalm 41 concludes it. Psalm 42 begins a new book in the psalms, Psalms 42 through 72. So Psalm 42 and 43 are two separate psalms in our English version, but there is good evidence that these two psalms are considered as one. And the best internal evidence is the refrain that's found three times, Psalm 42, 5, 42, 11, and 43, 5. These two psalms show us the intense longing that a believer has for communion with God in the sanctuary. To me, You know, this time of quarantine is a modern-day application of the psalm to us. Believers long to be back in church, to be together with other believers, worshiping God corporately, the way corporate worship has always been, together. Thankfully, now some of the restrictions have been lifted, and we're having church once again. And these psalms certainly take on a new dimension in this time of uncertainty. Psalm 44 is considered a national lament, a prayer of the people who shared a common plight. The nation of Israel has suffered a harsh and humiliating defeat at the hands of their enemies because God has not gone into battle with them. And so most believers can relate to this psalm when in times of distress it seems that God is not answering our prayers. Paul quotes from this psalm in Romans chapter 8. This is the famous chapter in Romans wherein Paul says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And to Paul's point at Romans 8, we add the point of Psalm 44 that even suffering does not separate us from the love of God. Psalm 45 is a royal psalm. The New Testament quotes this psalm and applies it to Christ in Hebrews chapter 1. There the focus is on the first part of the psalm, the righteous reign of Christ when he comes again. Then in Revelation 19 verses 6, 7, and 8, we read about the time of the marriage supper of the Lamb and his bride, the mention of the bride, the pure linens, the royal bridegroom. All these elements in Revelation are drawn from this psalm. Believers should rejoice in our glorious King who will one day experience full union with His bride, the church. He is worthy of our praise because He is completely true, humble, and righteous. We should submit to His authority in view of who He is. We cannot look forward with great anticipation to our union with Him and our glorious future with Him from then on. Now, Psalm 46 reminds us that believers of all ages have taken refuge in God when threatened by the destruction from nature or the devastation may be caused by an invasion. It's the awareness of God's presence that enables us to deal with the crisis of life. This psalm holds out for the promise that there is coming a day when there will be no more wars, praise the Lord, no more devastation, praise the Lord, for the Lord will reign over all the earth with righteousness and power. Psalm 47 is often called an enthronement psalm. The psalmist called on all nations to honor Israel's God who will one day rule over them all. This is a prophetic psalm since the worldwide rule of the Messiah was future when the psalm was written. It's still future as to what we're talking about today. Once again, our encouragement is to look to the future when God will once again or will one day set everything right. Psalm 48 reminds us that sometimes 
ancient Israel had a strong sense of false security in their capital city and their temple. It was partly because the temple, the dwelling place of God, was present in the city, and only in that truth was its vulnerability explainable. The message of the psalm is that the Lord was to be the security for the city, not the city itself. Admiring the temple, the city and all its beauty is not wrong, nor is admiring the great church and the cathedrals of past generations. But the truth remains that the God of Scripture is to be worshipped in Him alone, not the places wherein He is worshipped. Psalm 49 tends to remind the reader of the book of Ecclesiastes and the futility of worldliness and wealth. Possession and power cannot save anyone, uh, nor can those things survive past death. You know, the instruction here is to trust in the Lord and to live wisely in spite of the present and oppressive people. The psalm does not prohibit people from becoming rich or wealthy. It reminds them that to trust in it and to live for it, those things are foolish and futile. Those who cherish the power and wealth of this world will perish like the beasts, but those who live by faith will triumph over the grave, we might say. Now, Psalm 50 is attributed to Asaph as the author. Uh, the sacrificial worship system was central to Israel's worship, practiced routinely every day and at special occasions and at many other times throughout the year. However, sacrifices can become routine and devoid of meaning. And this psalm does not condemn the sacrificial system, but reminds us that in the sacrificial system, it was designed to keep Israel in relationship and fellowship with God and to help them know God. Worship is not negotiating with God. It's connecting with Him and being obedient to him. Psalm 51 is a psalm that is specific to David's sin with Bathsheba. For 3,000 years now, David has been teaching sinners the way of God's forgiveness and mercy through this very psalm. Christians have made use of the psalm in their confession of sin, but they don't have to anxiously wait on the Lord as David did. We can have forgiveness now. That's the beauty of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verses 16 and 17 of this psalm are likely to be the most important of this psalm. They say, you do not desire sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. Wow, that's powerful. Confession, therefore, is more important than any sacrifice. This means that even David understood that the nature of the Old Testament sacrificial system was designed with a dual purpose of external acts, but also of internal acts of confession. And in this case, the internal acts of confession are far more important to God than any of the externals that he can do on the outside. Psalm 52 also has a historical reference in mind. The story is taken from 1 Samuel 22, verses 6 through 10. And the wicked will use their power of speech like a weapon, but the righteous will laugh at their actions. Because the righteous know that trusting in wealth and power will not bring security. They know those are just worthless phrases. Notice the phrase, but I am like an olive tree thriving in the house of God in verse 8. Olive trees were the most important ones in Israel's world. It can live for centuries and produce fruit even though it might be scarred, beaten up, and otherwise aged. Sounds a lot like the life of a well-seasoned believer. Although they've been beaten up and disfigured by the world, they stand strong in the house of God. They are trophies of God's grace. Psalm 53 describes the condition of those who attempt to live without God. Its wording is similar to Psalm 14. David tells us that the height of folly is to deny God exists or that he is present or that he is not present, excuse me, in human affairs. Psalm 54 gives us a superscription of David when he was hiding himself among the Zippites. Just as David found out that others betrayed him, so there will be those today who betray Christians. The hope 
you know, the hope that we have is the same as that David had. The Lord will sustain us. He will judge the wicked and reward those who are faithful to him. We just must be patient and wait on him. Psalm 55 stresses not only the intense fears and anguish from David's enemies, the psalm also traces the cause to the betrayal of a close friend. The text does not tell us who has betrayed David, and quite frankly, it doesn't matter, because whether friend or foe, David turns his concerns over to the Lord. And that's the point, because the Lord will be the one to deal justly with David's enemies. Psalm 56, David wrote this psalm when the Philistines seized him in Gath. He composed the psalm to a tune called A Dove on Distant Oaks. Interesting title. Must have been a common tune of David's day. We are not told a whole lot about it, just that that's how it was composed. The content of this psalm is similar to Psalm 54 or 55. David is determined to continue trusting in the Lord, even though his enemies sought to destroy him. Psalm 57 You know, life sometimes seems similar to a jungle with wild beasts threatening to devour us and hostile hunters trying to trap us. We're forced into a cave like David was. But like David, we need to keep our confidence in God. We need to rest in the fact that no matter where we are or what is going on in our lives, God knows all about it and is ready to hear and help us through. Psalm 58 reminds us of the old age problem of corruption in the courts and amongst the judges. Wow, that's a common thing right now, isn't it? Sounds like the psalmist is talking about our present government. This was a problem in ancient Israel. Unjust judges who corrupt society will be judged severely when the judge of all the earth rewards righteousness. In the New Testament, we're told to submit to governmental authorities because the design of the government was good. Unfortunately, sin has caused that government to become corrupt at times, not all times, but at times. If we are unjustly accused, our first recourse should be to take the matter to God in prayer. Now, Psalm 59, the occasion for this psalm was evidently the event, the re- Uh, in 1 Samuel 19, verses 8 through 14, namely Saul's attempt to kill David in his bed at home. David asked God to defend him from the attacks of the men and to humiliate them so that everyone might recognize that God is in control, that he is sovereign. I really like verse 10 of this psalm. It says this, In his unfailing love, my God will stand with me. Wow, that's powerful, isn't it? The fact that God's love is unfailing is what's most important. Because in a world where all of our relationships are bound to fall apart, God's love for us will never fail, will never falter, and will never fall apart. It's a good way to end this week, for sure. That's all we have for this week. Next week, we'll start up with Psalm 60 and continue through the Psalms. Have another couple of weeks of the Psalms. Hope you're staying encouraged. Uh, Email any questions you have to BibleReading at LMBC.org, and I will talk with you all next week.